Liz Corey. And I'm Katie King. And this is True Crime New England. What's up, everybody? Hello, welcome back to another episode. So glad to have you joining us on this Thursday. We're so blessed to be here. It better be nice out. It's officially spring, so we're hoping that the sun is shining, the birds are chirping, it's not snowing. Maybe it's raining and that's okay. That's all right. I Here like in New rain. England, we'll take rain over snow in, in spring. Absolutely. You know, my grandma's birthday is the first day of spring. So that's how I always remember it. And I remember it also because it's uh, Dairy Queen has free cones that day <laughs> because it's the first day of spring. True story. <laughs> and I, for those of you who don't know, love ice cream more than quite literally almost everything in this world. Here are my three favorite things, the things I love the most. My parents, the office, and ice cream. So, of course, I know the ice cream day of the year. Listen. And I have a Dairy Queen quite close to my apartment, thank God. Oh, that's dangerous. Might get some after we record today. Hell yeah. It's been a while. Anyway, true crime happenings usually don't involve ice cream. True crime can, however, somehow involve coffee. Coffee. Yes, our lovely listeners who have purchased us coffees recently Mm -hmm. using our Buy Us a Coffee button on our website. A very convenient tool indeed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you guys are interested, stay tuned to the end and we'll tell you more about that. Ah. But Amber has purchased us four coffees. Thank you, Amber. Amber, thank you so much. Amber, you asked us to give our cats extra head scratches, and we most certainly did. All three of them. They got the most head scratches they could handle. Caitlin also bought us three coffees. Thank you, Caitlin. Thanks, Caitlin. Finally, a listener named Erin bought us... I can't believe I'm saying this. I can't believe I'm hearing it. 20 fucking coffees. 20. Guys. 20. Took the record of 10... And, like, threw it out the window. And then smashed it with a hammer. <laughs> that is so fucking generous. Erin, that's great. And, Erin, you've you've bought us coffees before. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> You're so nice. I feel like we need to give you coffee for listening to us. Yeah, Erin, we should buy you a coffee. Let's... Let's get in touch. Let's chat after the show. Because that's... It. But really, though, it's so incredible and so generous. And the fact that anyone is even thinking of spending money on us blows my mind. It's incredible. And speaking of that, we actually got a physical donation for coffee. My parents, uh, we are proud, proud owners of four Subarus now, and we've always gone through Exeter Subaru in New Hampshire. Every car I've ever had has been a Subaru, and I love it. I'm a guru bitch for sure. And uh, so I don't know how it started, but somehow this woman who works at the Exeter Subaru named Chris, she and my dad started talking about something, and basically we found out that she listens to my podcast, and she has our podcast, Katie, and she has the whole time. And my mom most recently got a new Subaru. I don't know why. It's like every two years we get a new Subaru, but that's because we love them. And Chris quite literally handed my parents a $20 bill and said, here, give this to Katie and Liz, like a physical donation for coffee. Chris, thank you. 
not only for your outstanding customer service and ability to sell my family Subarus, but also because that is so kind. And thank you for listening, of course. Wow, suddenly I'm feeling the urge to go down to Exeter, <laughs> the Exeter Subaru. Subaru and make a little purchy-poo on a new car. I think, you know what, that's a good idea. And it's on, uh, I think it's, is it Lafayette Street Road? I know exactly where it is. I can see it in my mind's eye. Yes. Chris, we may be chatting. Yes, we may be having um, some moments. I am looking for a new car currently. Mine uh, has been making weird noises, and I've been procrastinating for several months about getting it fixed. So I need I need a new car, and um, it is possible I will be seeing you shortly and giving you $20. <laughs> in return for your kindness. So thank you, Chris. But seriously, thank you. That was very kind of you. And we do appreciate all that you do for our many Subarus, um, which are wonderful and we love them. And I honestly do not plan on ever getting a car that isn't a Subaru. So hell yeah. Hell yeah. God bless Subaru. (laughs) America runs on Subarus. That's not right. That's Dunkin' Donuts. (laughs) What is there? Love. It's what makes a Subaru a Subaru. I think that's what it is. Chris, tell us in the comments below. (laughs) Is it love? I think it's love is what makes a Subaru a Subaru. Unlike the fact that love is what makes a Subaru a Subaru, I think think that's what it is. Regardless, our case today involves, I would say, almost no love at all. And uh, that's pretty sad due to the terrible nature of this crime. And also, just it's very interesting because it takes place in the early 1900s, which we don't usually go super historical, so I'm excited to take this journey with you. Yeah, definitely. This case, and there was so much information, which is kind of rare when you have a case this old because it's really hard to find information. You know, most of the information then is based off of newspaper reporters and, you know, just kind of hearsay and town gossip, but this case was so highly publicized that yeah. it seemed like we had a plethora of information mm-hmm. so it'll be a good one yes for sure and it's interesting because this is uh one of two women who were executed in the state of vermont the only two women who were executed ever in the entire state so it's pretty interesting and the fact that it happened so long ago kind of shows where i mean new england in general takes place with the death penalty and that kind of thing, which, Mm -hmm. I mean, we're not really going to debate the death penalty, but, you know, it's pretty interesting. So I hope you guys stick around. Um, I know that we just gloated for seven minutes about how amazing you guys are to us, but we'll get into the actual interesting part that most people care about as far as our podcast goes. So stick around because it is quite fascinating. And without further ado, today we will be covering Mary Rogers. All right, Katie, before we begin this quite historical case, please, what do you have for sources for me today? I am simply honored to share with you and our listeners Mm -hmm. that my first source to start off with is indeed Wikipedia. Amen. Followed by Murderpedia. Oh. Followed by Times Argus, New England Historical Society, and findagrave.com. Amazing. I, too, as well as you, in turn, had Wikipedia. In a shocking twist, I did not have Murderpedia. 
I don't know how. I don't know why. I think I probably should be fired from this podcast because I did not utilize it. In fact, I didn't even see it. So Listen, it's all right. We're here today. We might lose our sponsorship. Just kidding. If you didn't have Wikipedia, we would be shutting down right now. (laughs) I think that's probably fair. But thank God I did have Wikipedia and I used it hard. I also had the New England Historical Society, which was wonderful. I had a website called Executed Today, which was very interesting and gave a very in-depth kind of analysis of the day in question. And I also had an article called Killing Mary Mabel Rogers by a woman named Sue Coletta, which I got from her website, which is quite simply suecoletta.com. Sweet. It was great. It was a good article. So let us begin with the basis of who is Mary Rogers? Mary Mabel Bennett was born on March 9th, 1883 to Charles and Joanna Bennett. Her father was an alcoholic. He was also pretty mentally ill, and it was really hard for him to be able to work a steady job. Mm -hmm. They were pretty impoverished as a result. He was also very abusive. He actually tried to kill Mary several times. Which blows my mind that, well, I guess maybe not so much because nowadays, of course, that would be an immediate, like, child protective services case and removed from the home kind of thing, but... um. Yeah, no, I don't even think the mom told anyone about these attempts Mm -hmm. on her life. On one occasion, Mary's father had to be physically pulled off of her because he was smothering her. He also tried to poison her with laudanum, which was an old-fashioned opioid. Mm. A pretty hardcore opioid. Yes. So giving that to a baby is probably not the greatest idea, which clearly... That was intentional on his part. Yes. And the thing, too, about back and this time, a lot of medications for infants and people in general involved opium. It was like a thing. So I guess this tincture was made of morphine and codeine, which today sounds like a great time. But back (laughs) then, definitely stupid and used for very simple things like this is back like in the era where you would rub whiskey on the gums of your baby so it would stop crying because of teething like that kind of thing so it probably wasn't super weird that they had this available but the fact that he tried to kill his infant daughter with it twice it's a little intense Mm -hmm. and also terrifying but luckily for i don't know herself mary did survive these attempts like you said so Thank God. Yeah, that's scary. Growing up, Mary was known for adding ribbons and bows to her hair and her clothes, and she had a taste for the finer things in life, even though her family was lower income. Mm. She still, you know, saw other girls at school, and she just had a taste for the nicer things in life. She wanted more. And she also was known in school for being kind of an outcast when other kids would make fun of her, though it didn't really seem to deter her. It only seemed to fuel her. Yes. Um, Kids would call her weird, and then she would just act more weird to set them off, and it really didn't bother her. She was a very independent child. Okay, good word. I will say, though, regardless of how independent you are, getting married at 15 is still a tad young. Just a bit young. Maybe not for the time so much, but it definitely seems still like a little shady. 
Especially when your husband is older than you. Marcus Rogers was 27 years old when 15-year-old Mary married him. Right. And they moved to Shaftesbury, Vermont. Mm. Marcus said that Mary was immature. When she was upset with Marcus, she would run away. She would avoid coming back. In one article I read, she also was described as being a hellion and, quote, a moral imbecile. Whoa. And I wrote, a.k.a. a teenage girl. Yes. <laughs> right. I mean, how weird is it that she would, when she's 15, married to a man so much older than her, get upset and throw tantrums, essentially. Yeah, she's 15. Her hormones are, like, sky high. He doesn't give her the extra piece of cake or, I don't know what they would fight about in 1902 or whatever. But, I mean... It probably didn't take much to set her off. And also, you have to factor in her childhood and how Mm -hmm. she was treated. And so, it kind of checks out. It really does sound like she was just a teenage girl married to an adult man. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The couple married in 1898. And in the spring of 1901, Mary gave birth to a baby girl they named Helen Alice Rogers. When the baby was just six months old, Mary ran into a neighbor's house fully in a panic, sobbing, and she kept saying she dropped the baby, and the baby ended up dying of a fractured skull. Which, honestly, like, I feel as though it would take more than just dropping the baby to completely... Babies are pretty resilient, I will not lie. As someone who works with babies quite literally from their birth, you kind of know a lot about, like, how... I mean, of course they're fragile, but the way their bones are made when they're born and they're that young is the cartilage. And it, obviously there would be some damage to a baby's head. I don't know if it would completely fracture the skull. Maybe it would. It's 1901. Maybe babies are more fragile back then. I have no <laughs> idea. But it is definitely suspicious. Mm. Quite suspicious. Because, I mean, I'm sorry, but did you really think Mary would be like a good mom at 18? She was still kind of immature. Right. Right. Especially if she's known for being immature. Right. I just... (sighs) Yeah. It's shady. Mary's husband's family claimed that Mary did it on purpose. Interesting. They only became more suspicious of her after Marcus got sick as fuck after drinking some tea Mary made him. Yeah, that is interesting that they would kind of connect those two things because... I don't know. I just feel like maybe making your husband tea isn't super weird. I bet you she did that all the time. So I wonder how they pinpointed it to that cup of tea. Mm. I'm just speculating because there's so much room to speculate. But I think if I was his family, I'd probably be suspicious too. For sure. Yeah. Especially if they're hearing his reports of, oh, I asked Mary to do the dishes and she ran out of the house screaming and stayed away for 12 hours. (laughs) Right, right. Weird. Just a little weird. Soon after the tea incident, Mary moved out of the house, but Marcus still wanted them to be together. Yeah. He was so in love with her. At least he acted like it. He was whipped. He w- Oh my god, he was pussy whipped times <laughs> ten. Which is... Is that crude? Yes. But, well, show throughout the story, he is constantly trying to get her back. Knowing, I think, that he was poisoned by her. That she was immature and did not want to be a mother, let alone a wife. So it's very interesting how hard he had fallen for this girl. Not too long after this incident, Marcus moved back to his hometown, which was in Hoosick Falls, New York. 
and he really needed money, so he worked as a farm laborer, and he begged Mary to come with him, and she was like, I ain't leaving Vermont, so she stayed, she actually moved to Bennington, Vermont, and that's where she ended up staying for the rest of her life. She just did not want to leave, and so she made a new life after he left, and she certainly didn't try to hide it at all. She was very promiscuous, and I normally don't really think that's a bad thing at all, but she was married, and she just did not seem to care who knew, you know? So she actually lived at a rooming house called the Spalding Rooming House, which was on East Main Street in Bennington, and she made lots of friends, and she partied constantly at clubs. She was always drunk, getting around. She was known to have a litany of male followers behind her, which you go girl, I guess, like you're hot, love it. And so she just was having a lot of fun and not so secretly. And so she began to have affairs with several men of different ages and she liked the attention. And listen, I get it. That's fine. Everyone likes a little attention. It's okay. We can say it. So she was just living. She was having fun, but she was married and also potentially killed an infant. So. In June of 1902, Mary met a 21-year-old, a little older than her, laborer named Morris Knapp, which I honestly think is a great name, and I love it very much, and it is definitely going on my baby name list, who spent his free time working with the uh, Vermont National Guard. So he was a powerful man, probably very strong. Girls love that. And um, she immediately struck a vested interest in him, and they began to have an affair. And of course, this is all while her husband, Marcus, who's in New York, is like writing her letters like, Mary, please come move with me. I love you. Come work on the farm with me. Raise our babies and we'll be blah, blah, blah. Yeah, no. She was like, I'm fucking this guy behind your back. And also, I don't care if you know. (laughs) She was kind of saucy. During the early summer of 1902, Mary actually moved out of the Spalding rooming house and moved into the home of a couple whose name was Emmett and Laura Parham, and their two sons, 28-year-old Levi and 17-year-old Leon. Unsurprisingly, Mary actually started sexual affairs with both Levi and Leon, so she had a little bit of the both sides of the spectrum, an older guy and also a younger man. She was robbing the cradle while her foot was in the grave. I don't know mash the two sayings together. So using her new sexual friends to her benefit, Mary kind of decided on offering a little proposition to her older lover, Levi, in early August of 1902. She offered him $500 to kill Marcus for her. Levi was drunk at this point, and he was like, sure, baby, I'll do whatever you want. And then when he sobered up, he was like, you were kidding, right? Because I'm definitely not doing that. And so later when this all kind of came out, he claimed he didn't go to police because he thought it was just, quote, idle talk, which maybe when you're drunk, sure, I could see why you'd maybe think that. Um, On August 10th of 1902, Mary was quite literally laying in bed with her younger lover, Leon, you know, a little bit of pillow talk here, and um, she asked him to kill her husband for the pretty payment of $500, which Katie and I, we did a quick inflation calculator before the show, and while the inflation calculators that we discovered only went back to 1913, we can 
I mean, we can assume that in 1902 it was a, a little bit more than this, but $500 in today's money, give or take, was about $15,500, which, let's not get into like morals and stuff, but Katie, would you kill someone for $15,000? For me personally, I wouldn't kill someone for all the money in the world. Fair, but pretend like you had a price. I was going to say, if I was someone that... If I was a hitman sure. and someone offered me $15,000, I think personally I would be offended. Absolutely. I'd be like, let's raise the bar a lot. Times at least 1200 yeah. Or you can go find somebody else to murder. Honestly, and for such a pitiful amount. Again, maybe 15000 was like so much back then. But, sorry, I just don't, I just don't think that's very much at all. Unfortunately, though, because Leon was, like, obsessed with this girl, he was definitely pussy-whipped. He was like, of course, my love. And the funny thing, too, is, is that Mary made it very clear that she wanted him killed so she could marry Morris Knapp. So this poor boy is like, I'll do anything for you, baby. I'll kill this motherfucker, and I'll end his life, and I'll be, you can be that man, you can marry Morris, and whatever. Still, like, so far gone into this woman's... Mm-hmm. So far gone. So he he agreed. He still agreed. And on August 12th, 1902, just two days after their pillow talk agreement, they put their plan in place. Mary met Marcus in a picnic grove at 11 p.m. Leon accompanied her, but Marcus, for some reason, didn't ask too many questions about why he was there. Yeah, which I found a little bizarre, but okay. Yeah, I don't know what he thought was going on, but I think he was just so happy to see Mary that he didn't really care. Because remember, he is still so in love with his Mm -hmm. wife. So in love. And I think after her rejecting him all this time, repeatedly over and over, Mm -hmm. her saying, yes, okay, fine, let's meet and let's get together, I think he just was so thrilled about this that he didn't really think about the whole scenario. Right. Mary also pretended to be happy to see Marcus, and she actually also talked to him about reconciling their marriage. Yeah. Which is really sad, I think. Very sad. Because, of course, Marcus is all, like, hard eyes, whatever you want, Mary, let's go talk further into the picnic grove, and let's hold hands and kiss, and... Yeah. Yeah. During their little picnic gathering, Mary told Marcus that she wanted to show him a rope trick that she had learned. She demonstrated on Leon several times, and she kept tying his hands together. Every time she tied his hands together, Leon was able to break free very easily. And Mary, every time, would pretend to be disappointed. Like, oh, damn it. I was so... I thought I had this in the bag. (laughs) Let's try again. (laughs) Oh, darn. Okay, one more time, Leon. Yeah. Mary did the same on Marcus, and each time he also was able to easily break free from her tying his wrists together. Mm Mm-hmm. Mary then told Leon to try it on Marcus. Leon quickly bound Marcus's wrist behind his back, and Marcus was not able to break free. What? You mean the trick was mere... What? You're kidding me. That's weird. (laughs) Poor... Marcus must have been like, all right, guys, let's let's stop. Game's over. What is with the... Yeah, what's with this weird rope game? Also, very John Wayne Gacy-esque. Because John Wayne Gacy used to do a handcuff trick where he would trick the boys into putting on handcuffs and he would say, okay, get out of it, and then he would murder them. So this is like 
she's like the OG of that, which is very interesting. Like, this is clearly not an original idea, you know? Right. When Marcus was struggling to try to get his wrists out of the rope, Mary reached into her purse and pulled out a vial of chloroform. She forced Marcus to inhale it for 20 minutes Mm. before he finally stopped struggling and fighting. Yeah, he was finally had lost consciousness. And I'm just wondering why she didn't bring a fucking rag with her. Why just make him inhale it? Sniff! Sniff! (laughs) Smell the vial! Like, just use chloroform, hold it over his nose, and you're good. Whatever. I'm... Whatever. But it worked, and eventually he was unconscious. (laughs) When Marcus went unconscious, Mary went through his pockets and found his life insurance payment book. Which, just as a side note, I don't know what people did in 1902... I don't know if it was common practice to just carry around your life insurance payment book like it was your wallet. I guess. And I'm also wondering, too, maybe she asked him to bring it? Oh, maybe. I'm not sure, but either way, he had it on his person and yeah. she took it. Yeah. Mary and Leon then rolled Marcus's unconscious body into a nearby river where Marcus drowned. Mary then took Marcus's hat that had fallen off in the struggle and pinned it to a tree with a suicide note she foraged. And here's the thing about women in the early 1900s. They were not often educated. And that's a problem. That is definitely a problem. And this is, of course, before, you know, the suffragette movement. And women were in school regularly. They usually became housewives. And they learned how to knit and sew and cook. And that's how it was. Unfortunately for Mary, the note that she had forged was quite indicative that she was a woman. (laughs) due to the misspellings and also i mean the note itself was pretty um looking back on it if i had just heard it out loud and didn't know that the spelling was all bad i'd be like he did not write that note this was very much written by somebody trying to pretend it was suicide the note stated quote Blame no one as i have at last put an end to my miserable life as my wife knows i have ever threatened it Every knows I have not everything or nobody to live for. No one can blame me and so blame no one as my last request. Marcus Rogers. P.S. May hope you will be happy. So I think maybe it could have gotten away with it if she didn't add the little like, first of all, don't blame anyone but me as my last wish, (laughs) which is like the most like I was murdered, you know? (laughs) And then also, P.S., you know, I hope you have a happy life, Barry, whatever. Why would he? No. No, his happy life was with Mary. Right. So why would he? Yeah. The way that miserable was spelled in here. Yeah. M-I-S-E-B-E-R-L. Very close. Knows. N-O-W-S. Yep. Request. (laughs) R-E-Q-S-T. Anything, E-N-Y-T-H-I-N-G. That one I could get if you're illiterate. Anything, sure. The rest of it, though, come on. Miserable girl. (laughs) She was trying, I get it, but she didn't do a very good job. It also didn't take long for Marcus's body to be discovered. Leon soon came forward with a full confession. The body was actually found 34 hours later. Yikes. And Levi had told police that Mary asked him to help her kill her husband And he said, you know, I didn't think anything of it at the time, but, you know, my idiot of a younger teenage brother, 
who swoons at the very thought of Mary, Mm -hmm. probably was next on her list for her to ask. So I would go chat with my imbecile of a little brother. Yeah. And they sure did. And Leon broke right down. Immediately. Immediately. He was like, I'm so sorry. I helped her. And that was, you know. And here's the thing that I thought was the most bizarre is that like you said, it was like 34 hours after Marcus was killed that he was found. He was found face down in the mud. You know, he was, um, to be blunt, wet. And so this is so morbid, but when they removed his body, they placed him on a stone wall nearby so he could essentially dry out, which I thought was very bizarre. And then they put him in a wheelbarrow, wheeled him to the Parham house because that's where they knew... Mary lived and they knew that this was Marcus, but they needed like a positive ID, right? And that's when they like, they knocked on the door. They had a wheelbarrow full of a corpse and they were like, hey. And Levi was like, oh my God, it's over already. And that's when, you know, he busted his little brother and yep, the pieces kind of started to come together. (laughs) Like they dried out a corpse. Which is so morbid. It's so awful. I was reading that. I was at work, honestly, doing this. And it was like 2 a.m. And I was like, oh, oh my God. Can you imagine wheeling a body through the streets? Yes. get to the destination? Not even to, oh God. And he's definitely, you know, he's been dead for 34 hours. He was in rigor. And he was probably very stiff and now dry and just awful awful stuff i feel very bad for marcus again because that is just a very vulnerable and i don't know if embarrassing is the right word but like it's just not a great way to have a body be seen you know it's his dignity is all gone right yeah it's terrible so immediately mary was arrested and so was leon and i think Ultimately, because of his age and also his immediate confession and role in convicting Mary, he was given life in prison for his role in the murder. Unsurprisingly, Mary did indeed plead not guilty to her first degree murder charge. She says, what are you talking about? He left a note with his hat. That was his hat. I remember him wearing it. He wore it on our wedding day. I don't know. She probably didn't say that. But, you know, she was like, that's his he... that's his handwriting yeah no 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 definitely not and leon immediately was like i'm so sorry so it was unfortunate and maybe mary felt a little betrayed but i think leon maybe came to his senses and was like i just killed this man for her and helped her and the whole time she wasn't even gonna marry me she was gonna go marry morris knapp maybe she would still have sex with me and that's a little immoral but I just killed somebody so who cares you know like it's just so much it's crazy it's so bad and so obviously the prosecution had Leon up there testifying against Mary and Mary's defense team didn't even call a single witness they knew it was just like it's over with the only thing that they could really do was try and get her to not be executed which unfortunately did not happen they ended up finding her guilty of first-degree murder, and sentenced her to hang. Now, interestingly enough, only one other woman has ever been hung in Vermont history, and her name was Emmeline Meeker. 
So as for Mary, they set her execution date tentatively as February 3rd, 1905. Representative Frank Archibald proposed that the Vermont House and Senate investigate Mary's mental state and physical health, both at that moment and at the time of the crime itself. They came up with a resolution and decided that if Mary were physically or mentally unsound at either the present time or the time of the crime, they would request a reprieve and delay Mary's execution until after a legislative session in 1906. So they were really working to get her sentence commuted or at least extended, 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 try to keep her alive as long as possible because she's a woman. She has breasts and a vagina. We can't hang her. She could populate the whole country if she wanted to. So they were really, really trying. And a lot of people in Vermont and all over the country were also trying to get this to stop. There was one affidavit that included the testimony of one Dr. Leroy D. McWain, which is awesome name, Leroy McWain. What a badass. He uh, was a doctor, obviously, and he promised on his life that he had seen Mary just days before the murder and in his office, and he had diagnosed her with being pregnant. Yep, diagnosed her with pregnancy. He claimed that this meant she was suffering from, quote, puerperal insanity, and that contributed to her committing the murder. Basically, her pregnancy hormones were making her whack. Now, was Mary actually pregnant? Seems like she wasn't, because there's no record of her having a child in that time. So that's interesting. Could she have had a miscarriage? Of course, you know, that happens soon, especially back then. But I think Dr. Leroy McAwesome-Sauce was lying. Yes, just a little. I agree, because everybody was enraged. Everybody was just in shock that they would even contemplate the idea of hanging a woman. A woman. Right. One woman, known only as Mrs. William Blickensdurfer, of course, because it's 1902, she didn't have a first name. She was from Stamford, Connecticut, and she actually sent money to Mary's lawyers to try and give her, well, a better deal, you know, and also to get more publicity for her case because mm -hmm. they were like, more people need to know they're about to hang a woman and get it to stop. So people were supporting her from everywhere. It was like, a whole upheaval of everyone. Like, it was all anyone could talk about. In 1905, the Vermont Commission to Investigate State Institutions had began an investigation into charges of sexual assault and misconduct at the Vermont State Prison, which was where Mary was being held. A huge part of this investigation was centered around inappropriate sexual relations between Mary and two other prisoners. Mm. At first, when I was reading about this, I was thinking, okay, the articles and the way that they're written, they're making it seem like Mary is continuing her promiscuous behavior in prison. Right. Until I read a little further and I realized that one of the prisoners who had sexual relations with Mary was actually a convicted rapist named Vernon Rogers. Mm. He had gotten a guard's key. And one of the articles I read said that he did a remake of it in a workshop at the prison. Oh. And he entered her cell and they had contact with one another over 10 days. That's a long time to not be caught. Yeah. Yikes. Yep. 
So, of course, the articles about this at the time are saying they had sexual relations, you know, they had sexual contact, but I question how consensual all of this was, especially if Mary's thinking, you know, I'm locked in a cell, I'm safe. Here comes a convicted rapist who (laughs) stole a key, made a copy of it, and he's entering her cell to have sex with her multiple times. That's awful. Yeah, that's terrible. One of the other main points of the investigation was that Mary gave birth to a child over a year after she had been in prison. Right. And that is definitely, I mean, she was in jail. Like, you just said it. How did she get pregnant? Exactly. Mary's execution ended up being scheduled for December 8th, 1905. The night before her execution, Mary asked if the gallows had been erected because she was able to hear the noise of the construction, Hmm. even though everyone tried to muffle the sounds. That's pretty... Pretty morbid. How awful is that? You just have to sit there in your cell and listen to them build the gallows that you are going to be hung from? Yeah, that's pretty awful. That's so sad to me. Even for who she was and what she did. Right. She's a murderer, I understand, but yeah. Oh my god. Like, just imagining sitting there and everything hitting you full force. Yeah. That those gallows are being built for you. Yeah. It's very sad. And uh, that morning, December 8th, 1905, over 50 people came to Windsor Prison to watch Mary be hung. Because remember, back then, a hanging was about as entertaining as going to a Star Wars film. Everybody had to be there. Get your popcorn, get your soda. Everyone's watching. I don't know how or why anyone would find pleasure in that, but uh, again, the times were much different. Mary was dressed in a black dress, and shirtwaist, as well as her beloved gold chain and locket. Her hands were tied behind her back, and she was brought up onto the scaffold, where it is said she suddenly became pale with fear. So far, she had kind of maintained a tough exterior, but when she got up there, I think it kind of sunk, you know, sunk in, and she realized, oh shit, I'm about to die. Unfortunately, she had no idea what was about to happen, and it was about to be a lot more brutal than she even imagined. She was asked if she had any last words. She said no. So technically her last word was no. I always think that when they say she had no last words. She had a large black sack placed over her head. And then the noose was tied around her neck. And as soon as the trap door was released, Mary dropped. Normally what would happen is it would snap her neck and she would die, essentially. And that would really be it. It's supposed to be very quick. Except when Mary dropped, chaos broke out because... The rope had stretched, and it, in fact, did not snap Mary's neck. Instead, Mary's toes were actually touching the ground beneath her, and it meant that her neck obviously did not snap and instantly kill her. Instead, they yanked the rope back, tried to get Mary a little bit off the ground, and she was essentially left to writhe in pain and slowly strangle to death, which, again, the opposite of what was supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. In fact, it took Mary 14 minutes to die. 14 minutes. What's supposed to be less than 14 seconds, if that, ended up being so much longer in where she could feel herself dying the whole time. Yes, she murdered her husband. She potentially murdered an infant, which hits me hard because I'm a little baby myself. But that, I wouldn't wish on anyone. That's horrifying. That's torture. Absolutely it is. And the fact that 
the rope had stretched and it took people a couple minutes to realize what was going on and figure out a plan of action. Several sheriff deputies had to run around and grab the rope mm-hmm. and hold it up and keep it there suspended. Continue the torture. Awful. So obviously that kind of brings the debate of, you know, execution obviously is still a thing today and it's supposed to be like not cruel and unusual and it's supposed to be quick and that's the whole thing about the death penalty is that even though these people are pieces of shit, Mm -hmm. it's supposed to be quick and relatively painless and just get it done. So the fact that she was struggling and writhing in pain completely overrules what that death penalty execution is supposed to be. Which is terrible. I can't imagine watching that. Right. I hope that those people who went there as spectators never went to another one of those again because they were so traumatized by what they saw. Yeah, and I hope they felt bad. Mm-hmm. And I hate to say it, but I feel bad for her. Oh my god, me too. Did she deserve to have that happen? No. Awful. Definitely, definitely awful. Mary Rogers was the last legally executed woman in the state of Vermont. Very interesting. And, I mean, rightfully so, because clearly they botched it. Mm-hmm. And while they did hang and execute other people beyond that, most notably Donald DeMag, who we covered in episode 22, it was still, like, it should have stopped, I think, <laughs> all executions at least for a little while, because that is really, truly, like, they did not know what they were doing. And it led to this, essentially, torture. hmm Yeah. Which is, again, she mercilessly killed her husband. Definitely killed her baby, let's be real. And, you know, she had taken up all these lovers and blah, 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 but she still didn't deserve that. No, I don't think anybody deserves to go out that way. No. That's terrifying. Yeah, and that is the very interesting historical case of Mary Rogers and the murder of her husband, Marcus Rogers. Interesting, historical, we love it. I like doing historical cases on the occasion. I think they're really interesting. I think it's an interesting glimpse back in time to see how they handled those things back then. Yes. Especially in 1902, where their solution for having a body identified was to cart it through the streets in a wheelbarrow. Right. Not normal these days. Crazy. It would be kind of weird, actually, if you were to see policemen. Well, would it be? (laughs) Yes. I think ultimately it would be kind of weird to see policemen wheelbarrowing a corpse through the streets. Like, oh, hey, Johnny. (laughs) Like, weird, but... Very interesting, very... I'm really glad that there was a lot of information on this case. There's a lot of good stuff. For sure. It was well documented, for sure. And the other lady, Emmeline Meeker, who you had mentioned, Mm -hmm. she was the first woman to be legally executed in Vermont. We have her on our list of cases to cover as well. Yes, so hopefully we can touch upon that someday, because it's pretty intense. Mm -hmm. If you guys want to tell us your thoughts on this case... Do you think that Mary Rogers deserved A, to be hung in general, or B, even deserved to be struggling like that and essentially tortured? Of course, any of your your opinion is okay. Like, share with us. We want to talk to you. Like, tell us what you think. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at TrueCrimeNE. All lowercase. Or you can send us an email at our email address, which would be TrueCrimeNE at gmail.com. 
We also have a website, truecrimene.com. You could go to our website page about this case and see some photos of our Lady Mary Rogers. You could also go to our Contact Us page where we have a handy-dandy submission tool. You can be anonymous if you so choose. You can leave your name if you want to. You can use that to share your thoughts about this case, other cases we've covered. Let us know any cases based in New England, please, that you'd like for us to cover in the future. Absolutely. If you decide to leave your name, you'll get a little shout-out. And then below our handy-dandy submission tool is our Buy Us a Coffee link. You hit the little button that says thank you. And it will bring you to our Buy Us a Coffee page where you could buy myself a coffee and Liz a hot chocolate because Liz does not partake in coffee beverages. Unfortunately for me, guys, trust me, it's not a choice. (laughs) (laughs) But if you are to be so generous as to do that, you'll get a little shout out just like we did at the top of the episode. Thank you again, you guys, for buying us a coffee and... In general, thank you guys so much for being here and for listening. You do not have to spend a cent on us. We just genuinely appreciate you being here. Absolutely. We love you guys. And if you want to show your appreciation in a way that does not involve financial strain on your bank account, you can always go to Spotify and give us a star review, or you can go to Apple Podcasts and give us a star or written review. Either way, we're thankful that you're here. And uh, with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye.